Hi, welcome to The Playful Musician. I'm your host, Steve Davidson. Each week, I sit down with musicians from all different paths, from composers to conductors, percussionists to piccolo players, to tease out their strategies, practice habits, tips, tools, tricks, routines, and how they keep all of it playful. The Playful Musician is an intimate look into the lives of each musician, how they got to where they are, what motivates and inspires them, and what playing music means to them. If you'd like to learn more about the guests or just more about being playful, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can find show notes, links to all references mentioned in the show, and all kinds of resources related to music. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to The Playful Musician on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave a review as well? Thanks again, and without further ado, here is this week's episode. This week's guest is my good friend and fellow saxophonist, Professor Rhett Bender. Rhett teaches at the Oregon Center for the Arts at Southern Oregon University. And in this conversation, we talk a lot about the challenges of the past year, uh, pandemic year, including teaching remotely and how performing and performances have changed. Red also talks about his journey uh, to becoming a saxophonist and a university professor. And we talk a lot about where Red finds creative inspiration and his practice habits and routines. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Red Bender. Red, thanks so much for being on the show. It's great to see you. Thank you. I'm I'm thrilled to be here and uh, honored on the second day of January to be on your podcast. All right. The first one of the new year. Happy new year. Yeah. Happy new year to you. So we just, you know, crossing the new year, it's always a time to reflect for me personally. I'm always like looking back and um, a year ago I was sitting on the beach and Costa Rica and thinking about, what I was going to do in 2020. And of course all that changed. And I'm sure for you, it was maybe a similar phenomenon coming back from break and then like everything changed. And so I'm just curious how, you know, how, how that was for you, how that, that shift <laughs> was a big shift in the, in the teaching world, but also in the performing world. For, yeah. Uh, it, um, it was the first time, you know, just this year, this, um, once the pandemic started, became the first time uh, that I, I didn't know what my next gig was going to be, my next concert or my next uh, project. And all of these things that I was planning on happening in 2020 um, were getting postponed postponed again, <laughs> rescheduled, and then eventually canceled. And uh, so uh, it, it was just a lot of uncertainty. You know, it started the year, I had a really terrific 2019. I had traveled all over and um, had done a lot of performing. <clears throat> I'd been in Paris at the summer uh, showroom picking out a new tenor saxophone. I had uh, performed with the German string quartet in China. 
Um, on New Year's Eve, I was flying back from Tasmania and uh, having the longest New Year's Day because I left there on New Year's Eve and then landed in uh, Oregon and it was still New Year's Eve and uh, <laughs> went to the concert of the Rogue Valley Symphony Orchestra. And uh, yeah, and then, and then the whole year started great. I was at the NAMM show um, with Selmer. I uh, um, was at the National Saxophone Alliance meeting in at uh, your alma mater, Arizona State, in March, right when the the pandemic was happening. If it if it would have been just a few days later, that whole conference would have been uh, canceled. But uh, we just squeaked in. And uh, had our conference at the very beginning of mm. March, and I performed with uh, vocalist Madeline Abel Kearns, and and then flying back, all of a sudden we we're wearing masks, and uh, and then everything at uh, the university was postponed and then canceled and gone went remote. Right, right. How how big of a challenge was that the shift to remote? teaching well it was a tremendous challenge in that um i teach a variety of things i mean broadly i have uh, a theory class that i teach theory and oral skills um of course private lessons and then uh, ensembles and of course mm -hmm. ensemble literally <laughs> is the french word for together right and uh you know, we've taught online courses before. Yeah, that's right. I have taught online classes, but uh, none of these classes that I've done online were the three areas that I just described. They, um, these were cohort, like my theory class, for example, is a cohort of students that started in the fall. And uh, we build our theory program around uh, ensembles, th them collaborating, writing music for each other, performing and recording. And um, we were just finishing that unit on that kind of thing in March. And then all of a sudden we didn't return for <laughs> spring, which would have been the culmination of their first year of study and, and uh, using all of these things that they had learned to then write more of their own music and, you know, kind of produce that stuff. So, and then same with the ensemble, you know, you build an ensemble starting in the fall. We, um, we were actually the last concert to happen before the pandemic made everything go remote. So that was uh, the very first week of March. Mm -hmm. And then as you expect to have the culmination of the school year, the, the peak ensemble experience, because now they've played together for the longest time. Um, students studying with me doing their senior recitals and graduating all of that stuff all of the you know the most important things were the things that we we couldn't do so it was, it was yeah. quite a challenge yeah i can't imagine and right in the middle it's not like you happened in the summer <laughs> it's right in the middle of the school year right Right. So quickly, I had to figure out how to deliver an effective curriculum in all three of those areas uh, to get us through the school year. 
And then, of course, and we're, we're still doing it now. This whole entire year is probably going to be the same. Right. So what solutions did you come up with for the ensembles? Well, I uh, was very fortunate to um, already have been in conversations with uh, uh, our mutual friend and composer, Todd Barton. Uh, we had met uh, earlier in the year and just I, I t told him that I really wanted to feature his music in the spring. We've He's written a lot of music for myself and my ensembles. And I just uh, wanted to present all of that and then um, feature something new that he was going to write for us. And uh, because I was in touch with Todd, he very generously also pivoted and uh, wrote a piece of music for our situation and our situation being that we're not going to meet in person. Mm. Uh, the ensemble members are going to be sheltered in wherever they're living. A lot of them weren't even in the Rogue Valley any longer. Um, so he came up with a project um, where he would write some musical ideas and uh, we, we worked on them recording these musical ideas. We'd send them to Todd and he um, worked his magic on them and would give us another assignment the next week. And we, this was a process that we did the whole term on. And uh, I'm very thankful to Todd for his, um, his energy, his intelligence, and um, ability to do a project like that. The students uh, really got a lot out of it. And mm. uh, we made a not great situation into, a, a, I, I think, a very artistic experience that um, they'll always remember. Here's an excerpt from Todd Barton's Pathways, as performed by the students of Southern Oregon University. Thank you. 
So that was a silver lining. <laughs> yeah. Of yeah. sorts. Are there any other silver linings or any anything that's come out of this, either for you teaching or for the students that you think is is going to be valuable going forward past post pandemic? Sure. I mean, there's always something you you learn from any stressful situation. I mean, for me personally. Um, I'm always interested in what the latest technology is, but I don't always have the time to learn it. And uh, this put me in a space where um, I had to learn it Mm. and uh, I had to learn how to teach it. So like uh, teaching the students how to record for the ensemble, for example, Um, the students themselves, uh, well, I would say I learned a lot, a lot of things about students. I mean, I've always, you're a teacher and you, you know what I'm talking about, where all students are, are different and uh, they all learn in different ways. Yep. And um, this was an environment now where there, there's students that were challenged by it, but, but there were a lot of students that really thrived by it hmm. and uh, nurturing their desire and ability to learn in the new environment was, you know, taught me something. And uh, so I think it amplified the spectrum of students that, you know, have this, this, the highly motivated student that's going to do things without you asking them to do it. And uh, they're going to come to their lesson and have a lot of questions and, Mm -hmm. They're going to get a lot out of teaching, whether it's in person or um, it's remote. Um, then, then there's the students that uh, dwelled on the situation, and um, that became a lot of um, honest counseling with them and trying to help them work through the experience that we were all going through. Right. Still are going through. Still are going through. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious with the one-on-one with the studio instruction, <clears throat> are you able to play with them or do you like have them record stuff? What does that look like? Yeah, that's, that's, that's tough. And um, there's a lot of nuance to it. Uh, you know, the first thing that I, I did and, and I was familiar with teaching remotely. I've, I've taught students in China remotely. Um, right. And I learned very quickly a long time ago that, having them play in real time uh, sounds terrible. And, you know, there's just, uh, there's just so many factors to, to, to uh, be aware of. So I, going into this term where everything was remote, I had this list of things that they needed to do. Like number one is you have your own metronome there so that, you know, you're playing to your metronome. You're not playing to me trying to send uh, a metronome signal through the ether for you. That's, Um, and then you know i also teach a bass clarinet and some baritone saxophone and boy does microphone quality really make a difference i bet i hadn't even thought of that (laughs) yeah um i had this experience where uh i had a a very good student that's uh, studying bass clarinet and just using the microphone on the computer or the phone and of course it 
I'd lose like an octave and a half of any kind of sound. And then when eventually the student got a new microphone, it was like, oh my gosh, you just sound amazing. <laughs> I mean, you, need, you need to let all the students know that having a good microphone really makes a difference. And, uh, you know, and I demonstrated to them too, the sound difference between me using a real microphone and, and something that's on their phone. So, Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, there's lots of little things that we all learn from this experience. Sure. So you you mentioned that you you've taught remote students in China, and I know you had or you have even Chinese students in your studio. Did did any of them stay, or did most of them go back to to China? Um. Well. Prior to the pandemic, uh, actually, this was the first year that I did not have an international student. Um, oh, since I can't, I would really have to go back and look to see when last time I didn't have any any international students. And of of that group, most most of them are Chinese. Um, you know, there's a lot of factors uh, why international students aren't coming to the United States as much as they used to. Um, that's a whole other topic. Yeah. But um, with regards to your question, I did have a student who uh, graduated with his master's degree, a Chinese student, and uh, auditioned and got into University of North Texas. Um, but then go, it, the audition was last year, just prior to the pandemic. But now, now of course, he can't go because of uh, visa problems with uh, if you're not actually on campus and you're doing everything remotely, uh, you can't get a visa. And uh, he doesn't want to do it remotely from China anyway. He wants to go to the University of North Texas to work on his doctorate. So, yeah, there's there's been some some dilemmas like that. Sure, sure. And the what about the rest of the saxophone? community are you guys is nasa still happen i mean is are the events still planned is it all going virtual through 2021 uh yeah uh the world saxophone congress was supposed to happen in japan this summer and uh again that was another thing that was on my schedule of projects to do and that has been postponed now um of course, the Olympics, you know, are, are also in Japan and they were postponed from this past summer to 2021. Mm-hmm. So now our saxophone Congress, World Saxophone Congress, won't happen until uh, July 2022. The um, regional meeting, the uh, Northwest meeting of the Saxophone Alliance, uh, actually, I was going to host at uh, Southern Oregon University and the national organization decided to just make all regional conferences remote this year. So in April, we're hosting a virtual conference Mm -hmm. and the details of that are still being laid out. Sure. Rehearsing with any, any remote groups as globe (laughs) rehearsing at all or uh, no, no, not exactly. I, I'm working with um, the singer Madeline Abel Kearns. Uh, she and I um, 
had uh, just done I'd, Lori Leitman's I Never Saw Another Butterfly in, in Arizona. And we'd been performing. We actually had concerts uh, scheduled in the Rogue Valley that got canceled because of the pandemic. And so now we're at the point where, okay, we see a light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe we'll start scheduling some things in hopes that everybody mm. uh, will be safe. And um, so as far as with regards to your question with rehearsing, uh, we're in communication about how we want to do this. And uh, I am going to record some parts for her to sing to. So mm -hmm. uh, we've commissioned a couple of composers um, that are in, in the process of writing things for us. So I imagine we'll, we'll keep doing this back and forth where um, we'll record in, I'll, I'll record the saxophone part first and uh, then let her work on the vocal part and, right. and uh, help the composers um, write their music and um, continue with the repertoire give give madeline a way to practice the repertoire that we already have sure and i saw you did something cool with uh martin mike Hoot. in august uh oh well we recorded it in august and it was released in september it was the martin the conductor of the rogue valley symphony orchestra um wanted to do concerts in lieu of the uh, concert series that that was canceled. So uh, he decided that he the the Masterworks concert the first one would be um, him playing piano with um, half a dozen uh, featured members of the orchestra, and uh, so two of us at a time would uh, go to a location. You know, they were all. Um, in patrons how homes so mm. we went into the home of a patron in medford to record it was a fabulous experience actually mm. um so minimal crew you know the musicians would just be uh, martin and myself and uh he wanted me to play the rachmaninoff vocalese on saxophone so we Beautiful. recorded that and then it was uh, released in September as a virtual concert and it's available on YouTube now. Yeah, it was, yeah. A, it was actually a great experience. I'm I was really thankful to have that as a project to work on. That was the first thing <laughs> after everything got canceled uh, that I had a chance to work on. So I was thankful to have that and it gave me something to practice. Here's Rhett playing with the Globe Saxophone Quartet, Mazalanka's Mountain Roads. Thank you. 
lot of pivoting. A lot, a lot, yeah. A lot of changing. Yeah. Do you feel like this is going to feel like there's going to be any lasting change for higher education from this? From an outside, it feels very tenuous because of, I'm sure, like enrollments going down possibly or a lot of reconfiguring or trying to figure out how this is going to go forward. It, yeah, it, definitely education um, is changing. And um, I would add a little caveat to that, that it, it it's always changing. You know, the university is a dynamic institution that's always uh, evolving. And what the pandemic has done is sort of amplify the changes that were going to happen. Maybe it's sped us up 10 years. Um, and you're right. And en en enrollment's going down. Um, the the numbers of uh, graduating seniors in high school are going down every year, and there's just less students going into go going to study at a university. So um, yeah, that that's change. That's going to change things. Um, is your your question is complex. I mean, there's a lot of nuance to it, and I could easily talk for a whole nother podcast about the role of higher, of education and higher education. And yeah, um, you know, I, uh, somebody I really like, a futurist, Brian Alexander, um, wrote a book called Academic Next: Futures of Higher Education, and uh, he he wrote this book before the pandemic, and in there. He mentions if a pandemic ever hit, <laughs> this is how it would affect <laughs> right. uh, the, the role of higher education. And you know, I have to say, he's, he was pretty spot on. It, and it's an interesting book because he gives a lot of different scenarios on how hmm. universities can pivot and evolve. So the simple answer to your question is, yes, I do see universities changing. Yeah. How? I'm not sure. I yeah, think we're all we're all negotiating that right now, trying to figure it out, and the yeah. students, yeah, and the yeah. students as well. Like, did you have you had in, incoming freshmen this year for twenty twenty fall twenty twenty? I did. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. We have. Um, I, I'm teaching the class actually of uh, first year music theory students right now. And it's a cohort of uh, currently 10 students, which is actually exactly the same number we had at this time mm. last year. So, um, I, yeah, I don't know what to say about that other than my class doesn't seem different from what I've had in previous years. So that I guess that's a good thing. Um, I, I've got incoming saxophone majors. There's incoming clarinet majors and bass clarinet majors. So it's... Um, yeah, that's great. That's really great. I wanted to talk about um, one of your teachers, uh, I think probably one of the most influential teachers that you've had, uh, Dr. Kenneth Fisher. Mm. And um, you had mentioned in, a, uh, in a, I think in another interview or something, maybe in the in the Saxophone Journal, you were talking about his influence on you and his his approach to teaching and practicing that really seemed to have a profound um, impact on you. And I was hoping you could maybe just talk about that and maybe elaborate a little bit on what his what that was from him 
his approach to practicing, his approach to teaching, um, that, that impacted you so much? Yeah. Uh, he, he's a, was a huge influence on me. Um, and I've, I've had a lot of teachers that, that in every respect have always shaped my, um, who I am today. And, um, uh, Kenneth Fisher was, um, my saxophone teacher for my master's degree. And then again, for my doctorate at, at the university of Georgia, I had become aware of, uh, Dr. Fisher by reading an interview that he had done with saxophone journal while I was an undergraduate at Iowa state university. And I remember reading that editor that, um, interview with him. And he, he said a few things in the interview that really struck me as, um, this is a, I, I liked his philosophy. He, uh, talked about, um, you know, to, to be successful in, um, our field as a teacher, the versatility that one has to have, um, vers- being a versatile player, being a versatile uh, teacher, meaning that if you are asked to teach a music theory class or, or a jazz history class or music appreciation, mm. you can do all of that. And um, I coincidentally ran into him at um, the uh, Midwest Band and Orchestra Clinic in Chicago. It, around Christmas time, I uh, was uh, going to, uh, I was went to, to Yamaha to say hello to uh, Eugene Rousseau, who I'd mm. been also corresponding with, and uh, Kenneth Fisher was with him, mm. and and I introduced myself uh, to Dr. Fisher, and he knew who I was, <laughs> <laughs> and, and like wow. you know, I, for me uh, that was such a wow i mean that made an impression yeah. he knew who i was because i had written a letter to the editor saying to the saxophone journal saying how much i really appreciated the interview with kenneth mm. fisher and he re- he remembered me he remembered my name wow so anyway uh we started you know i was a senior or a junior even in, in as an undergraduate and i just started um we started a correspondence and um, I had auditioned for several schools and uh, University of Georgia being one of them. And uh, I ended up there and uh, he encouraged me to do a master's degree in woodwinds again, to play to that versatility. Sure. Um, I, I had been studying quite a bit of clarinet. I always played a lot of clarinet. Saxophone's my primary instrument, but I, I have quite a bit of clarinet background. So um, I decided to do that and saxophone, clarinet, and oboe as a wow. master's degree woodwind student. And th- then, as far as his teaching goes, um, I, you know, there's so much I've learned from him. But if I was to like boil it down into a, a nutshell, is I feel like he taught me how to practice. Okay. I, th- I don't know that I ever really practiced very effectively other than just spending time with the saxophone. And, uh, he had this way of efficiently practicing and it made me realize that, um, I can have a life 
<laughs> I can ride my bicycle and play saxophone <laughs> if I do both very efficiently, you know, use my time wisely. And, uh, yeah. So what, what did he have you do? So I'm imagining you've, you've come from Iowa, you had your own routine, your own practice routine, your own way of doing it. Like, can you say specifically like what he t- changed or tweaked for you? Yeah. I mean, it, like, I mean, I can remember one, uh, lesson in particular or early on in my study with him that really has stuck with me. Yeah. You know, I did have a way of practicing and I, I was getting more efficient in, in practicing in Iowa before I went to Georgia, but sure. it was always about like, how much time could you put in the sa- I mean, for me, it was like, right. how much time can I put into my instrument? That's, that's how you get better. And, um, he uh, so so I had played something. Uh, it was the Iber Concertino, and uh, I had played it. And uh, he, there was he, he was super picky. And there's there's one phrase, and he's like, "Play that again, <laughs> okay?" I played it, and it was, as far as I knew, I was playing it fine. And uh, he he was hearing something that uh, I wasn't hearing. Mm. And he had a way of breaking it down and showing me how to hear that. And, uh, and then he showed me how to practice and it came down to two notes. You know, I, you know, I was playing this whole like four measure phrase Mm -hmm. and didn't know what he was hearing that he didn't like. And then when he broke it down for me, he kept making it smaller and smaller and smaller and got it down to two notes. And I was like, Oh wow, I'm not playing those two notes clean at all. I, I, uh, you know, I just was playing through, I just didn't hear that. And so, and then he taught me how to fix it. And, um, he said that, uh, so much of these things that give us trouble really can be broken down into a very simple component. Mm -hmm. Don't waste your, your time practicing everything else that's around that. Figure out what that component of your phrase is that, that isn't working, you, you may not know what it is. You, you just know something's wrong. And yeah. uh, until you break it down into those two notes that aren't working, um, you, you, you won't fix your problem. Right. But you also have to know that it's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, and I would say that another thing that um, he got me to do, and, and I did a lot of, is like listen to recordings and other people play critically. But was, uh, one thing that was really cool was um, – we did juries together. So the undergraduates would play, mm-hmm. do their juries. And um, I'd be sitting there along with the, the other woodwind faculty doing their juries. And I, I was learning from them, not just Dr. Fisher, but all of the woodwind faculty, what it was that they were hearing mm. and how they could approach that jury examination in a way that was constructive for the student. And, uh, yeah, it was such a learning experience. I'll just being there and, and, and absorbing the years of experience from these woodwind teachers. Yeah. Did he teach you how to run a, a quartet or did, would you play in quartets in Iowa also? Sax quartet? Yeah. 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 I, um, 
saxophone quartet for me uh, is probably why I'm a saxophonist. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I mean, I think we all played saxophone because we love playing jazz, and that's probably the first thing. And um, I had a moment. Um, this is a little off topic, but it's sure. about quartet. <laughs> you know, when I was in high school, I, uh, I just loved playing saxophone. I loved playing in jazz band. And, and we had a saxophone quartet, two altos, tenor, baritone, that would go to contest. And, and you know, we'd do well. And it was, it was fine. It was chamber music. And it was fun playing. And then um, somebody gave me uh, a recording of the Paris Saxophone Quartet playing Bach recorded into a church in, in Paris. And I heard that recording, that, that album. I still have that album. That's such an influential album to me. And I just could not believe that these were saxophones. Mm. Like I, it's like how, how could this instrument sound like that? The saxophone was sounding like John Coltrane to me. And the way that these soprano, alto, tenor, and baritone saxophonists were playing was just, amazing and from that moment on i fell in love with the saxophone quartet and i immediately got a hold of a soprano we changed our quartet um and this is in high school the four of us mm. played together after high school I, di I didn't study music right away at the university but mm. i still played with my friends from high school in a soprano alto tenor baritone saxophone quartet um, we actually won a talent show contest at the <laughs> Iowa State Fair. You know, awesome. uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, the Bill Riley talent show. We were finalists. And um, anyway, so back to your question about, about the saxophone quartet. Uh, so it's always been something that everywhere I've gone, I've been part of the saxophone quartet. And then, yes, it continued at the University of Georgia um, where I was really lucky to play with an absolutely fantastic quartet. Started out as the Athens Saxophone Quartet. Mm -hmm. um, we've had different members, but um, we continued to play and eventually evolved into what is now the Globe Saxophone Quartet. And we're all University of Georgia graduates, and, um, and we still play together today. Yeah. And yes, we we're very influenced by the coaching of Kenneth Fisher. I mean, his his quartet coaching was was top notch. Yeah. What was he like during rehearsal? What would he? What kind of things would he have you guys do? Um, boy, he uh, he, he he was he was. Uh, demanding and i'm trying to think of a nice way to say that um yeah they, they could be demanding rehearsals uh he he's such a fun affable person mm -hmm. um but but there's teaching situations where he could he'd be quite demanding but you but in a way that you always wanted to achieve like you, you understood what he was trying to get at yeah. And uh, when he was being picky on the tenor player, you, you knew even if you were the tenor player, what, what the reason was. And, uh, and it, it, everybody had just stepped up our game in our playing. Um, it, you know, he also played in, in the quartet for a while. Uh, I actually never played with him. He had a quartet with graduate students 
um, called Verismo before I was at the University of Georgia. And then he kind of took a break from, from that. And um, so the graduate students, had our, we had our own quartet. And then uh, when I left the university, then he went back into playing with the graduate students and had the Kenneth Fisher saxophone quartet for a while. So um, the, the people that I play with now in Globe, they all got that experience where he was playing soprano saxophone with them and, you know, like learning from his uh, playing as well as teaching at the same time. Sure. Wow. That's awesome. Did you, when did you know that you wanted to be a university professor? Like how early in your, was that in high school? Or you wanted to be a band, you were thinking you were going to be a high school band director or something? No, I, you know, to be honest, I wasn't really thinking I was going to major in music when I was in high school. I, uh, I, you know, my, my father is career military. And for a long time, I thought I was going to, uh, be a military officer and be career military. And I actually did uh, go and start ROTC. Right. You were um, in the reserves, right? Or I just was in ROTC for ROTC. two years at, at the, at, at Iowa state university. Yeah. Um, reserve officer training corps. Yeah. Um, I was on scholarship as a engineer. Um, I, and you know, I, in, in high school, uh, music was very important to me, but I, I was also very interested in science. Um, I was, um, a physics, astrophysics and mechanical engineer major, if you can believe it at Iowa state university. Um, and, but back to your question, when did I think I'd be a university professor? It was actually in that field, not in music. Oh, okay. So while I was in physics, um, I was working at um, a telescope, um, our, the Fisk Observatory. I was a radial uh, observer. Wow. <laughs> I, um, and so I was working with a professor who was doing research. And um, I was very much in that physics field. And just to me, the future was I, I thought I was going to be a university professor, but in physics. Mm. And um, I've always felt like I've had a knack for teaching. Even when I was younger, I just, I, I have a way of um, speaking to individuals to help them learn something. And often people come to me uh, to have me help them with something. And uh, I really enjoy doing that. So as far as uh, being a university music professor, that, that came later. I mean, I I thought I was going to be a professor before I was in music. Right. That makes sense. Right. At what point, though did well you so you made the switch to music major but then you still had the acad academic path was that's where you wanted to be teaching yeah i i, I you know i did consider you know when i just switched to um music i of course thought i would be a high school band director and i you know, was very much thinking I would be on that path. And uh, another very influential teacher t of mine, my saxophone and clarinet teacher at Iowa State University, Dr. Joseph Messenger, um, he, he was asking me, you know, wh why do you want to be a band director? Because um, you're doing all these other things. It seems like you have all these other interests and mm. um, specifically performing. 
and I and I said, well, I just didn't didn't think there was a career out there for me. Um, I thought it would be too impossible to be a university teacher. And he actually encouraged me to do that. That he said, you uh, kind of along the same lines as um, Kenneth Fisher did later. You, you play these woodwind instruments. Um, you're really good at music theory. Um, you play jazz. You've got this versatility that uh, you just need to specialize in some things. Um, you should consider doing a master's degree in in performance, but don't just keep yourself to one thing like saxophone, be, be broad. And, and right. that's, again, led right into my um, – contact with with kenneth fisher and right so i i just thought well i'll just i'll do this i'll i'll go to graduate school and just see what happens i, I mean really knew there was a lot more to learn sure uh, i didn't know exactly what my path was going to be after I, I learned what i could learn i just knew that i i had to learn more about music and uh i sort of in the back of my mind thought well i'll i could always go back and be an engineer but right now music is pretty cool and i just want to keep learning about it well, you learned like how many instruments? Tuba, euphonium, guitar, <laughs> saxophone, violin, percussion. Like, who taught you yeah. all those instruments? Yeah, I, I'm definitely a jack of all trades. That's not to say I'm good at any of those instruments. Um, so I started on violin in when I was in fourth grade. Wow. And so uh, was that like a Suzuki kind of? No, it was um, regular high school or um, um, uh, elementary school orchestra uh, where, where I was in Iowa. We started um, orchestra, started strings in fourth grade. I was 10 years old. I was, you're younger than all of the students around me. Um, that being said, I loved music, but I, I didn't like the violin very much. I, you know, I really wanted to play guitar. My, my brother and I would, you know, make, we made these fake guitars out of plywood and we'd pretend we were a band all the time. And I just, you know, I love music. I love, awesome. And so anyway, the, the violin was sort of a, okay, I'll, I'll do this first, but I really want to play guitar. So what happened was uh, in seventh grade, we moved to a really small farm community in Iowa that didn't have an orchestra. And, um, <laughs> that was my ticket out of the orchestra. <laughs> now I kind of wish I still played violin, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I, they put me on tuba. That wasn't my choice. They put me on tuba as <laughs> I wanted to play in the band. Okay, great. We need a sousaphone player for the marching band. Here you go. And I was like, what bass clef? What? <laughs> oh no. Uh, yeah. So I went through a whole rebellion with brass instruments brass instruments and I, and, and I didn't didn't really click very well uh, but but they put me on euphonium and let me read treble clef and you know I was making progress but I was I was pretty frustrated and at the end of my eighth grade year we had a new band director and he said um, yeah I, I told him I was just I wanted I was not happy in band because it just this instrument, you know, the violin made a lot of sense to me. You put a finger down, the note gets higher. I just wasn't, I didn't get the brass instrument thing at that age. Um, so he said, well, there's a tenor saxophone in the closet. Why don't you take that home and give that a try? And here's a book. <laughs> and I literally 
took it home over the weekend and felt like I learned how to play the instrument. Wow. You know, it just, it made sense to me now. Okay. You put this finger down and the note gets lower. You lift this finger up, the note gets higher. Like that seemed like violin to me. And uh, so anyway, and then I just loved it. I just loved the instrument and I just couldn't get enough of playing the saxophone. So then I got kind of attached to woodwind instruments. My brother, uh, who's four years younger than me, was starting on clarinet at that same time. And I thought, well, I can learn clarinet too. So, well, I would take his clarinet and his books and I would just, you know, everything he was doing, I, I would learn right along with him. And so I kind of learned how to play clarinet at that same time. Were your mom and dad musical also? No. Um, my mom, um, you know, they they both would, especially my mom, would sing in church, mm-hmm. and uh, I I believe she played piano and when she was a child, and I think she was a drum major as well. Yeah, uh, my dad was not musical. Mm-hmm. They listened to music a lot. I was you know quite influenced by the music that I was around all the time. So they were playing um, music in the house a lot. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of country music. I grew up with a lot of Johnny Cash. That's why that's also why I wanted to play guitar because I oh, would right. sing all these Johnny Cash songs when I was young and pretend, you know, pretend I had a, had a guitar. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Let's hear some more of Todd Barton's Pathways as performed by the students at Southern Oregon University under the direction of Rhett Bender. driven this is a this is something i've noticed about you that like you you set your mind to something you're like you're 110 percent in has that have you always been that way like whether it's cycling like you just you give yourself yeah i don't i don't think there's anything i've seen you do that you don't give it your all whether it's cycling or uh <laughs> Paying the saxophone or teaching or whatever it is, like you're you're always all in. Has that has that always been the case 
Was that well? I appreciate that. I'll t- I take that as a compliment. I, I appreciate it. Um, uh, if something interests me, yes, I'm all in. I'm 110%. I mean, you, what you're describing are all of the things that really interest me. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things that you don't know about that I don't do well. So, <laughs> well, of course, it might seem seem like I'm driven because of the things you know about. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like. There's, I mean, I remember this in physics. Like, like there's something about physics that really fascinated me. So, um, I would live in the library and just find all the books on physics and you know look at them and read them. And I was always just like, I want another book i want to learn more about calculus i would want to be ahead of the class because i just wanted to know more Mm. and um i wouldn't say that 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 i was necessarily better at any of these things um i i certainly struggle with some things like say foreign languages that i'm also passionate about um i yeah i get if it interests me i'll I'll give it 110 percent for sure were you, are your were your parents that way? Was that kind of an ethos in your house, like really passionate about? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, definitely. Especially my father, he uh, he's just such a capable person. You know, I he would uh, just do everything uh, from tearing apart the Harley Davidson in the garage to. Uh, I remember like helping him replace wheel bearings in our car and, um, and you know, he, he, uh, just, he, yeah, he would set his mind to things and, uh, he still does. Actually, you know, what I would say that I really got from my father is that he always is learning and maybe that goes to the 110% of, 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 uh, striving in these activities is that for me, it's like, I just always want to learn. Like I just living is learning for me. And I definitely got that from my father um, who still to this day is learning. He uh, he's a pilot and uh, he's still flying citation jets and gets certified in whatever's new in whatever the newest version of the citation Mustang is. And Um, I just, you know, I, to this day, I watch him and think, man, I'm, I'm going to do what he does. I always want to learn as well. Right. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think that goes to the 110% because it's just something more to learn. Yeah. It's an activity for me to do foreign language. I love French. You know, I'm really trying to learn French and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's tough. It's really tough, <laughs> but I'm, I'm good <laughs> You know, I'm going to keep doing it, and uh, I I enjoy learning. As poor yeah. a French speaker as I am, I enjoy learning. I enjoy the process of it all. What a gift from your father to you! Like, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, so we talked about cycling a little bit, and that's you know, you and I have we have a lot in common, and I'll, yes, we do. <laughs> love, love of outdoors is one of them and i'm just curious do you draw connections between your your passion for outdoor activities and music is there a connection there of any type well i would say 
yeah, I, I have a need to be outside and, uh, what I, what being outside and doing any activity, whether it's running, hiking, bicycling, or skiing does for me is gives me this chance to, um, reflect on music. I, you know, I, I definitely do my best thinking when I'm out there in, in the outdoors, um, Mm -hmm. reflecting on my teaching. I, I often think about, okay, what am I doing with my, I think about my students and some of the difficulties they're having with their music and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, the outdoors gives me a way of, um, really resetting my mind and, uh, thinking about things. Yeah. I, I absolutely do my best thinking, uh, when I'm moving, when I'm outside, I, you know, I'll, I'll frequently just, you know, sometimes the students just having a rough day and I'll say, let's just, just go for a walk and we'll just walk around on campus and talk about things and I'm um, being physical or physically moving. Yeah. We're, um, we're, we're athletes in, in on our instrument, you know, playing our instrument as being athletic. So there's that connection too. Yeah. That's so cool. And Southern University is a beautiful campus to walk, take someone for a walk on. Oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. We're so fortunate to be right there in the foothills of uh, Mount Ashland. It's yeah. Right. Um, sorry, I just lost my <laughs> thought there. How do you keep how do you keep it fun and playful with your with your students? I I find teaching it's a delicate balance between like what you were saying that, that Dr. Fisher would do like really pushing you really being particular but also keeping it joyful, keeping it playful. What how, how do you find that? Yeah, I mean that that's a difficult question that I I'm certainly not going to have um, the answer to, and if you ever discover it, let me know. Um, <laughs> as we said earlier, every student is different, yeah. and uh, I, you know, I think with Dr. Fisher, he always left me with a desire to learn and practice and make something better, and I knew what that something was. Mm-hmm. So that's the essence of my teaching: is to try to deliver something achievable for the student, something that they can understand uh, this needs to be better. This is the way to make it better. And I, I want them to want to make it be better. Um, as far as like keeping it fun, uh, a lot of it is trying to figure out what's motivating the student in the first place. Like wh- why, do you want to play the saxophone? Why do you want to play music? What What is it about being a musician that you enjoy? Let's explore that. And then when I find whatever it is that they want to do, find a way to make it better. Find a way that they can see, okay, I, I appreciate that you want to play this piece of music, but do you hear how you're not playing it in rhythm or it's out of tempo here or you're out of tune here. Um, right. Let's do this, but let's make it better. And it doesn't matter what style of music they play. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm teaching the instrument. I'm not teaching a style of music. Right. So uh, I'm just helping them try to be better on the saxophone. Right. Can you think of any, like your, 
your proudest moments or any particular moments you're most proud of either performing or, or teaching? Uh, well, Pride is um, pr- proudest moment. I, I, I want to say that I'm a modest person, but that probably makes me not modest by saying that. Um, you know, I I was proud of the fact that I completed a doctorate. That was a pretty major achievement for me and personally. And I, I, uh, um, yeah, that was a pr- proud moment for me, and that my dissertation um, got published. And uh, now you can go to a library shelf and find that research that I did. Um, I'm also, I I like the contributions of repertoire that I have made to our current playlist as saxophonist. Um, You know, it's one thing to have a composer write a piece of music for you, but it's another thing to have a lot of other people like that piece of music and, and perform it. Um, Especially in the quartet and in the large ensemble area. I, I was, um, Really interested. In my dissertation, my my book was in saxophone quartet, but uh, I really got interested in the saxophone orchestra um, early on. And there's pieces by Todd Barton, for example, that he wrote that are are played by saxophone orchestras all over the world. And uh, my contribution to that, my um, instigating projects like that or i guess some some of my things that i like to reflect on yeah you know the, the collaborative ensembles that you've been a part of yeah, um absolutely. where we, we we toured mexico and china and europe and giving um the students those those experiences taking them from um our uh rural area and letting them experience a really different culture yeah um and I like to, uh, I, I really take pride in the students that I've had and that have, um, that are out there. I, you know, I, I keep a little spreadsheet that my students don't know this. <laughs> I'd say, don't tell them that, but they'll probably listen and hear it. I actually keep a spreadsheet where I, I, I just kind of keep track of uh, what people are doing because I've had so many students. I just, I, re- I really lose track of them, but they're, they're doing amazing things. Yeah. Um, not all of them are, are in music, but they're still playing their saxophone and they're doing amazing things. Yeah. Even in the, I want to say short time, but we've known each other quite a while. <laughs> in the time that I've known you, like seeing the alumni out there performing, teaching, um, even like you said, the ones not that didn't make a career out of music, that but are still loving the instrument, still loving music and still playing. It's, it's quite remarkable, right? Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I, I take a great pleasure on reflecting on that. Yeah. That's, that's a nice legacy. Yeah. Thank you. Here's the Siskiyou Saxophone Orchestra performing another work by Todd Barton entitled Gazongla.
wanted to talk practically a little bit about practice habits and routines and a little bit maybe about how that's changed for you over time and and what it looks what it looks like for you now in terms of when when you have a project like what does a practice session for rep bender look like yeah my my practicing has definitely evolved as i said earlier yeah. I, I thought it was like how much time can you put on the instrument you know how fast can you play this you know yeah. <laughs> we we probably all start there right sure. we, have this piece of music and let's just keep playing it faster and faster. And that means you're better. Right. <laughs> um, I, I've uh, definitely matured and learned that uh, practice time needs to be effective. And uh, fundamentally I tell my students and, and I do this for myself as well. Practice when you want to and know why you're practicing. Mm -hmm. Don't practice because you think you have to. <laughs> it, it, that's going to lead to an ineffective practice time. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to know in your practice session, what was the point? Were you trying to just have a stronger embouchure were you trying to get in touch with the articulation and the action of your tongue were you trying to learn a piece of music were you trying to make your intonation better um so i you know whereas i used to like try to practice minimum two hours but better better if i could do four hours a day i just i don't do that anymore now i i practice in short practice sessions where like I can just give my full attention mm -hmm. to what it, what it is I'm doing. So um, I'll, I'll, I always start with some kind of um, warm up. Um, you know, that's like the calisthenics and uh, getting the muscles going. I mean, for me, that's, that's a lot of um, technical stuff, just, you know, applying all kinds of different scales and um, trying to do things from memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I really encourage students to not practice in a vacuum. And what I mean by that is we, for the most part, don't play by ourselves. We nearly always are playing with another musician mm. and playing your band part and thinking that you've learned your band part is not sufficient. You know, you and I have played an orchestra yeah. together and um, it's some very difficult pieces. Yeah. Like the Michael Thielson Thomas piece comes right. to mind, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. think about how much we studied that score and studied that piece yeah. before we, you know, I mean, aside from the technical part of playing it we really had to understand the music yeah. and so that's what i mean by don't practice in, in a vacuum you know you have a metronome of course mm -hmm. because you got to play with rhythm um i also really encourage students to use um, a tone generator of some kind because they've got to learn how to play in tune if you're just going into a practice room mm -hmm. and playing uh I, you know, having a tuner and visually tuning is not the same. Right. Your ear has to learn how to tune. Tuning yeah. is by ear, not by sight. So in the in their lessons, I 
turn that metronome on and I turn that tone generator on all the time. So they get used to, okay, this is the way you practice. Right. And I do that for myself as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, there's all kinds of things it could be. It doesn't have to be a, you know, generating a tone. It could be a play along track. Right. Um, that's what, why I think the value of jazz and improvisation is, is that again, you're playing with other musicians. You're learning to play in time. Right. And, Hopefully, you're using your ears and learning to play in tune, and then you know let some of your creativity develop as well. Yeah. Do you write out a routine? Do you like with that intention? You know, you talked about like really having a clear intention before you sit down to practice. Do you have it written down? Um, I have a routine that um, I've written a workbook uh, for my students. I call it the. Uh, saxophonist workbook for the contemporary saxophonist or something like that. I mean, it, I just give it to my students and it's, um, uh, major and, uh, major scales, uh, all the way through thirds and fourths, fifths, um, harmonic minor scales, thirds, fourths, fifths, uh, diatonic sevenths, um, major, mm-hmm. and then diatonic sevenths, um, harmonic minor, and that to me is like the skeleton. Mm-hmm. And then I have a page of like articulations. And so what I, I'll, what I have, what I do and I tell my students to do is like develop a routine where you're doing major fifths in all keys with these articulations, um, diatonic uh, sevenths um, in a jazz style with these articulations with a tone generator uh, you know, and every student's a little different depending on where they are with learning this stuff and, and they have to memorize it. Yeah. Um, so you writing it down, like I write it down in their notebook, like yeah. you're going to do this, this, and this, when it comes to my, my own practicing and I do do all these things is I just, I just, I'm always mixing it up. I, another thing I tell the students is practice what you need to practice. Don't practice the thing you're good at. Practice the thing you, you, you're not good at. And I invite them to stand out in the hallway when I'm practicing sometimes because I sound terrible. There's times when, you know, because I'm playing the thing I can't do. Right, working on that thing. And uh, I'm working on it. Yeah. And you can't be afraid to to work on the things you can't do. Yeah. So, yeah, that, I guess that's my routine. And then I have a way of, like, manipulating. I, I'm very into the parallel modes and stuff, so I'll – have them do jazz uh, minor scales by just flatting the third and playing major scales. And, but none of this is written down, right? They've got the major scales memorized. So therefore they flat the third and then they can right. do the, and then, okay, okay. Now you're going to flat the third and flat the seventh and play Dorian. Right. And we're going to do all of that. And so those are, that's where it gets more advanced and, and those aren't written down for them. The only thing that's written down are those, uh, things I mentioned earlier. You touched on something that I think is really important, which is the the difference between playing and practicing. And mm-hmm. it, it's something that it, I I can vividly remember <laughs> when I was in high school and even in my undergrad, like wasting a lot of time in the practice room playing, like playing all the things I knew how to do. <laughs> And then, yep. like, well, I'm not really getting any better. And it's a really good distinction, I think, to make for students. Like, there's playtime, and that's valuable too. That can be really valuable just to play. But then there's also 
when you're practicing, you know, it's with a certain intention to get better or fix work on something. Yeah. And that brings us back to the athletics of being outside. I mean, that's the connection that I draw is that, um, athletes are working out to get better. Uh, professional bicyclists don't just go out and ride their bikes all the time. You know, they're, they're doing intervals and measuring their power and they, they have these very specific things that they're doing. And, uh, as much as, you know, we, we, of course we want to make music, but if, but if there's something technical that's holding you back, um, it's not going to make your music as enjoyable or as effective as we would like it. So yeah. we have to, we have to remember that we are doing something that's relatively physical and athletic and we can learn a lot by watching athletes. When I was at the University of Georgia, I used to watch the women's gymnastics and I was just fascinated by those routines, those, um, the vaulting and the, you know, the, the way they could do these things and make it like so perfect. Like they were always trying to make this like exactly like they did it before the floor routines. And I just thought, wow, I mean, I, I really had a lot of respect for the practice that it must take, the physical practice that it must take to do these things. Yeah. And that we're doing the same thing. It's just where you, we're, it's fingers, but it's also um, all these tiny muscles in our mouth and embouchure and lungs and all of that has to be coordinated just like a gymnast has to be coordinated and to do the kind of routines that they do. That's a great correlation. That fitness and that practice. Yeah. Working out. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my daily practicing, like, especially now during the, during this time of the pandemic, when I don't know what my next gig is going to be, um, I, I, I kind of do two things. One, I do the, the physical thing. I work on the physical part of stuff. I try to figure out, well, what is it that I can't do right now? And it, it changes a lot. You know, sometimes I can play, all of these things from memory and sometimes I can, so I have to, I have to keep working on them. Mm. But then I also just take some time and just play something for fun. This is where I think uh, jazz is fantastic and I'm not a jazz player, but I love playing it. It's uh, right now it's when I don't have anything in particular I'm working on, it's given me a lot of time to just improvise. Yeah and uh, go back and play some standards and just enjoy playing jazz again. That's cool. Wow. Yeah. That's really fun. So what are you, what are you most excited about for 21, 2021 either mostly musically, but maybe even personally? Well, musically um, this, this project that got interrupted with, um, uh, the vocalist Madeline Abel Kearns uh, continuing to work with uh, composers um, Derek Keller as our new new uh, faculty and uh, Chelsea Mykoot is also writing us a piece. Um, Brian Kearns, um, Madeline's husband, is is writing us a piece. So um, though that's the immediate probably most immediate project that I'm looking forward to. Um, the world saxophone Congress, you know, is not until now July of 2022. Mm -hmm. 
and um, the goal is for us to play some new music there. Uh, and then this uh, Derek Keller that I mentioned, uh, he wrote me some music um, that I've played. I, I, Derek's uh, also a University of Georgia graduate, and um, we knew each other in graduate school and had played in a he, he wrote some music for um, soprano saxophone, electric guitar, bass, and drum set. And uh, he's got some really eclectic music that uh, I've enjoyed playing, super difficult music. Mm. Well, but uh, I had him, I also played in this guitar, acoustic guitar, saxophone ensemble, Gita Sax. And he wrote a piece called Liminal Spaces for us. Um, and I've played it in China. I toured all over China playing it. I played it in Croatia, but I've never gotten to play it in the Rogue Valley. So I'm hoping now that uh, Derek is is uh, faculty in our university that uh, I'll um, have some impetus to relearn liminal spaces, which was a very difficult piece, and uh, actually play it here. Cool. Where are you finding uh, inspiration these days creatively? You know, I'm always inspired by other saxophonists. I, I, you know, if I was to pick one thing that super inspires me is uh, I, I, I love my instrument. <laughs> I love our instrument. I, I love the saxophone. And uh, I really like going to the saxophone events. Um, the last one, the national one being at Arizona State. And uh, just, you know, I I. I listen to a lot of music there. I'm always inspired by my colleagues at other universities, by professional saxophonists, by student saxophonists. There's some amazing students right now. It just the competition at at uh, Arizona State. The, the everybody in the finals was just an amazing saxophonist. The saxophone quartets were amazing. The ensembles are amazing. Um, I, I get really inspired by live music and um, especially anything that has a saxophone in it. I, yeah, I, That's awesome. I really, yeah, I, I really enjoy, I love my instrument. You know, it's still a new instrument. People are doing things with it that 20 years ago, nobody would have thought was possible. It's like, yeah, that's, that, that inspires me. When I hear somebody doing something on the saxophone that, I couldn't even tell you how they're doing it. That's inspirational to me. Why do you think it's so popular? Like the saxophone, it's, I teach, you know, I've worked at the middle school helping them and like kids just line up. They kind of have to twist their arm to do clarinet or, you know, some of the other instruments. Which, what do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, it's an easy instrument to see um transcend all genres right no matter what style of music you like you can hear a saxophone whether it's orchestral or or blues or rock or um even uh, north africa uh, north indian music mm -hmm. hindustani music i mean you'll find saxophone and just like when i was a student heard that saxophone quartet recording in the Paris saxophone quartet and could not believe they were saxophones. Um, it's a versatile instrument. Yeah. You know, it just can, it sounds like a human voice. 
and sounds like an electric guitar at the same time. It's just sometimes it, you know, of course an electric guitar can do lots of things, right? But it's all with assistance of um, electricity and the way people are able to take an acoustic saxophone and do these tremendously different things, um, I think has an appeal to it that uh, you don't immediately see with other wind instruments. Mm-hmm. Who did, do you remember who you, who you first heard that inspired you? Like what was it on like a Johnny Cash album? <laughs> Someone playing saxophone or playing saxophone. Yeah. Um, actually it was, a. Uh, one of my schoolmates in middle school, you know, when my band director said there's a saxophone in the closet, I immediately thought of the other students that played that instrument who were pretty good. And I wanted to sound like them. So as far as like live saxophone goes, that, that probably would have been the first one. But, you know, right after that, uh, I would, you know, as I was playing the saxophone, I, I sought out saxophonist and being a product of the eighties, I, um, I, I liked Dick Oates and the group Flim and the BBs. And, um, he, uh, he's from Iowa. He, he actually is, was from another small farm town about 10 miles away from where I grew up. And, uh, I, he still is just a really terrific, yeah. Uh, play, you know, he played lead alto with Thad Jones for a long time. And um, his father was the high school band director just down the road from where I went to high school. And we would get jazz lessons with him. So anyway, he was another saxophonist that I really liked. And David Sanborn and um, Michael Brecker and, you know, Spirogyra. Yeah. Uh, Yellow Jackets, all those kinds of groups. That, that's what I grew up with. Bill Evans, uh, not the, the pianist, but the saxophonist yeah. who played with Miles Davis. Like Those were my inspirations until I heard that Paris Saxophone Quartet album. And then I had to find out who Marcel Mule was and Eugene Rousseau and who are all these people. And they, that's cool. Yeah. What, are you, what are you listening to these days? Do you, list, do you consume a lot of music? I do. I, I, you know, I, I listen to a lot of music, um, a huge variety of music. Um, but like saxophone wise, um, I'm really enjoying listening to, um, Mark Turner or, um, Chris Potter, um, Kamasi Washington, uh, some of the newer jazz stuff that's coming out now. I, I really enjoy. Um, and then, the saxophonist like uh um well classmate of mine otis murphy jr uh, tim McAllister. they're always putting out fantastic albums and um i'll I'll, i listen to their music and there's um kenneth che always has a great new album and um there's so many sax- young saxophone quartets now i can't even off the top of my head think of a name of one but there's just some really amazing saxophone quartet music being done by um, a whole generation of quite young saxophonists. It's wow. fantastic. That's exciting. So 
you got the job at what year was it that you got the job at SOU? I started in the fall of 1996. 96. And you were how how old were you? <laughs> Let's see. I like you're going to do the math now, right? <laughs> All right. So, okay. So, Third, uh, I, 27, my, 28. I literally turned uh, 28 on the f- first day of the job. I, the, our contract is SOU always begins on my birthday. So I turned 28 years old when I began the job right. at SOU. So if you could sit down with 28 year old Rhett Bender and have a conversation <laughs> with him, what, what, what would you, uh, what would you want to tell him if anything? Um, well, it, you know, that, I always struggle with that question like that because it makes it sound like um, there's probably something in my past that I regretted that I wish I could inform my oh, former self. And, it, and I would, <laughs> well, I would say uh, the, the one thing that, um, you know, it, everything that happened has made me who I am yeah. now. So probably I can't do anything differently. But But I do regret sometimes that um, I had some saxophones that I'd sold in my past that I really wish I had back. I, uh, I go through a lot of saxophones, yeah. as you know, <laughs> and um, I had some instruments that um, I also like when I'm not playing something, think, okay, somebody needs to use this, right. I'll sell it. And uh, I, yeah, I, I had some saxophones in the past um, I had a, you know, a, I had a super balanced action tenor that was, um, in this, uh, the, the, uh, five digit serial numbers and it was a fantastic saxophone, uh, but I, it was a, for me, a jazz saxophone and I just wasn't yeah. playing it. And, uh, so I sold it. I, there's a, I had a super balanced action mm. baritone that I really rare horn. But I was tra- traveling to Europe, and I and I just needed the money to finance it. So and I wasn't playing it, so I sold it. Um, yeah, I mean, if I was to tell myself anything, it'd be don't sell those saxophones because you'll regret it in twenty years. Right? You would you? You'd kept the kept that stash of sax. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Rhett? Where are you, where are you online? that people can learn more about Rep Bender. Um, Bender saxophone is uh, mostly the hashtag that I use or Bender sax. Um, uh, if you um, actually, if you just Google my name, I'm the only Rep Bender in the world. So <laughs> I'm kind of easy to find that way, but yeah, Bender saxophone and you'll come up with um, my, my, newest location um which honestly isn't that up to date right now but um that's how you can communicate with me is uh, bender saxophone cool it's my handle awesome well thanks rhett for taking the time i really appreciate it and uh it's always fun to see you and talk saxophone and talk music <laughs> and we'll have to do another episode just about cycling or something <laughs> yeah <laughs>
<laughs> it was my pleasure and it was super fun. It's good to chat with you again. Thanks, Rhett. I'll see you soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks for being here. I hope you enjoyed the talk with Rhett Bender. Head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com, and there you can hear all the past episodes and see show notes from today's show and all the other past shows. Thanks again for being here. Have a great time. Enjoy yourselves. I'll see you again soon.